This episode is brought to you by our friends at Squiz. Squiz is a student experience platform that offers a full suite of solutions developed exclusively for higher education. Squiz has so many exceptional products that are worth checking out, but the two that I've been most impressed by are their custom site search product, Funnelback, and their website platform, which is a true DXP. And don't worry, I'll explain what that means in just a second. For the next wave of digital natives, search is not ancillary to navigation. Search is navigation. And Funnelback enables schools like yours to build custom smart site search. So that way your nursing program actually comes up when someone searches nursing instead of that one nursing faculty event registration page from like two years ago. And their DXP, it's so much more than a traditional website CMS. A CMS is meant for exactly what it claims to be, content management. It's an important part of your marketing tech stack and important part of the student life cycle. But that's just it. It's just a part. A DXP, a digital experience platform, is built to be the hub of your MarTech stack. It relies on powerful integrations, data management, and an open platform in order to create the kind of experiences simply not possible with a normal CMS. Say goodbye to the finicky plugins of WordPress and the crappy site architecture of Drupal that hurts your SEO and get ready to meet the fastest, most powerful, and most personalized website platform for colleges and universities on the market. Today, the student experience begins online, not at school. And as an enrollment marketer, your job is to ensure that prospective students find what they are looking for as quickly and as easily as possible. Squiz is the secret friction reducers that schools across the globe are using to not just attract the next generation of students, but nurture them to the point of enrollment in a way that is conducive and not counter to how they consume information and make purchasing decisions. You can learn more about Squiz at enrollify.org forward slash Squiz. Again, that's enrollify.org forward slash Squiz. Hey everybody, Zach here and welcome to the show. For this week's podcast, we are playing an episode that actually was originally published on another podcast that is a part of the Enrollify Podcast Network and that podcast is In Your Element. So if you haven't listened to In Your Element yet, you really should. It's an incredibly dynamic and entertaining show. In Your Element is a collaboration between Enrollify and our friends over at Element 451 and it's hosted by Eric Stoller. If you don't know Eric, you are missing out. He's very active on social media, an incredible voice in the greater higher education marketing and software space. He's just a wonderful thought leader. Anyhow, uh, In Your Element is a show that is, as I mentioned, is a part of the Enrollify Podcast Network, and they recently published an incredible episode with Cliff Holkamp, who is a venture capitalist. Actually, he's a VC that actually invested in Element 451. And if you aren't familiar with Element 451, they're an incredibly powerful, dynamic uh, CRM. If if HubSpot and Slate had a baby, it would be Element 451. That's what I like to tell people because it's true. Uh, I know the software really, really well. Anyhow, this 
conversation is incredibly dynamic, and the title of the episode is Innovation is Turning Colleges into Tech Companies. And the show is so well done, and the interview is super, super um, compelling and thought-provoking. Eric has such a, uh, to be honest, I had a little bit of host envy listening to his episode because it was just so well done. He did a fantastic job with the interview, and Cliff brought just remarkable insight. So this week's episode, we decided to drop this pod on the core pod feed because uh, we've been getting some good feedback on this on, on this episode and thought that more of you would like to check it out as well. And what this episode covers is the ethical and financial ramifications of a needs-blind admissions model, why university programs like entrepreneurship are becoming more and more popular at colleges and universities, and how recruiting and retention actually go hand in hand. And last but certainly not least, Eric and Cliff talk about the rise of technological innovation across universities and why colleges are actually tech companies. So super dynamic, interesting, compelling conversation. And I can't wait for you all to hear it. So let me know what you think. And if you haven't done so already, scroll down to the show notes, click on over to In Your Element, and be sure to just uh, subscribe to that show as well. All right, everybody, thanks for being here as always. And enjoy this week's episode of the Enrollify podcast featuring In Your Element, episode three, innovation is turning colleges into tech companies. Any organizational leader, and and now today, particularly educational leaders need to recognize that either they need to run a technology company or they're gonna find themselves being uncompetitive. So I strongly urge anyone who doesn't think of themselves as running a technology company to think twice and, and ask themselves what that means and are they ready? Welcome to In Your Element, a podcast on the Enrollify Podcast Network brought to you by Element 451, an advanced student engagement CRM providing higher ed institutions with a competitive admissions advantage from recruitment to enrollment through the use of AI. On each show, we ask five questions about current challenges, exciting opportunities, and what's next in higher education. I'm your host, Eric Stoller, and today we talk to Cliff Holkamp, co-founder, managing director, and general partner at Cultivation Capital, one of the investors of Element 451, where Cliff sits on the board. He's also a member of the Board of Trustees at Washington and Lee University, where he graduated. And in 2019, at Washington University in St. Louis, as Professor of Practice and Academic Director for Entrepreneurship, he led the entrepreneurship program to be ranked number one in the world. Being on the investment side, entrepreneurship side, and teaching side, Cliff is uniquely qualified to answer the questions I'm giving him today. For Cliff, his career started where you might not have expected, IBM, where he went through a six-month training program. The entire focus of this program was the business application of technology. So it was a very practical fire hose of education focused on um, how uh, technology is actually applicable to solving business problems. So it was very much an applied technology curriculum, which was uh, just wonderful training. I laugh when I uh, first uh, applied to that job when I was a senior in college, I was ignorant enough in technology to actually have written that email was one of my technology abilities. Literally on my resume, embarrassingly, I actually wrote email as a technical competency, which even in 1996 was pretty embarrassing. Cliff parlayed his email competency to a three-year career at IBM 
and then founded a startup that he would eventually sell to a private equity firm. After his exit, he started down the teaching path and has been in both higher ed and entrepreneurship ever since. From your perspective as a board member um, at Washington Lee, like what's going on? Sort of like how are things looking right now? Well, I think it's a challenging time to be on boards at any large institutions. There's a lot of bifurcation in our culture and our universities are microcosms of that. So, you know, any uh, board member really wants to serve the entire community, right? And they want everybody to be well-served and delighted and feel uh, included and feel valued in a community. And, And we're kind of fighting broader culture where... There's a lot of friction and fissures and divisions dividing up our communities. And so trying to maintain a community with a lot of diverse points of view, a lot of diverse cultural experiences and and perspectives, and keep everybody happy in the same direction in the same boat is really challenging in today's kind of macro cultural environment. And, And I find that universities often are the flashpoint for a lot of the kind of these broader national cultural issues. So um, I'd say it's, it's, it's challenging. It's difficult. I think COVID has been uh, a huge contributor to those difficulties. Uh, There's a lot of different ways to approach COVID and there's very strong opinions on the best way to do it. And you want to serve everybody, right? And you want to create an environment where all perspectives are welcome. And it's, it's hard to do that with some of these decisions, which are very binary. You know, you either require vaccinations or you don't. You require masks if you don't. Mm. Yeah, there's no halfway point there. There are not a lot of compromisers. There's not a way to to let some people do it their way and other people do it another way. So I'd say that the last couple of years have been among the more challenging in the in the history of academic leadership. No, definitely. And I, I just wonder, too, about the, the financial side um, of that. I mean, it seems like obviously with the the polarization that is that exists, but how do you manage, the, you know, the financial aspect of that? Because regardless of, you know, the binary, yes, no, right, wrong, do this, don't do that, you still have to keep the lights on. You do, and we've been very fortunate to have strong financial markets for the last few years, which uh, uh, has very much helped on the endowment side. So, uh, having a, a strong stock market, having low interest rates have been very beneficial from a finance perspective. You know, fortunately at a school like Washington and Lee, there's a huge demand for admittance. So um, we uh, are fortunate to be able to, you know, have a premium product, uh, charge tuition for it. Uh, I will say though, that we're very dedicated to having a greater economic diversity. And part of that is moving towards um, a needs blind uh, admissions and, and be in a position where uh, uh, every admission is made without any knowledge or regard to ability to pay. And uh, we're, we're very close to that. And, and having that uh, be at 100% is, is a very important goal for us as an institution. And of course, that just requires even more financial resources. Right. Well, it's the right thing to do. Obviously, it's an ethical move, but it's also a, it's a smart financial move because uh, I was talking to someone the other day about discount rates and everyone's sort of saying, you know, oh, discount rates are, are, are the wrong way to go. But at the end of the day, you still have students coming in and you're still recruiting classes just by way of how you're, you're, you're managing the cost. Well, it's right. You know, a lot of people don't realize that even our full pay tuition students are subsidized. Uh, there's a sense that your full pay students are 
paying over 100%, that they're paying for themselves and partially paying for scholarship students. And that's actually at a school like WNL or at a school like Washington University, that's not true. You know, all of our students are subsidized by the endowment, and, and most of that is the generosity of alumni who've come before and have donated to the school. So as expensive as it, as it is to, quote, be full pay, full pay students are still not paying the full cost of a university education. Right, right. By the way, if you ever go to a third university or institution, it should, it should, it's got to be like the University of Washington, just because. One hundred percent. I won't even step foot on a campus that doesn't have Washington in the I name. I mean, I, I feel like all your clothes, all the, all the sweatshirts and things that you have, just Washington. You know, like if you go to George Washington University or what, what have you. I, I might get a graduate degree at George Washington University just to round it out. That's a good. I'm, I'm amazed. I mean, really, because when I was reading this bio, I thought I'm going to mess that part up because it's so much Washington. Uh, <laughs> Um, but it's okay. I, I myself was actually born in Washington, Iowa. So, you know, there, there you go. Very nice. Now, you know, whenever I, I talk about the, you know, the Midwest, I, I think about my uh, parents and this is going to be the most uh, random segue uh, to try to get to the next question. But I think about, you know, your comment around being an email expert, which my father being like extreme Luddite that he is, is the reverse of that. For the longest time, the man was printing out every email that he would receive. <laughs> so all of us wouldn't email uh, my dad very often because we didn't want to, you know, we save some trees. But when I think about today's environment, when it comes to communication and, and you know, email is still a very uh, reliable, consistent sort of professional communications currency, everybody uses it. But, you know, I think about today's students, uh, and, you know, you could speak to this for maybe the students at, at Washington Lee or some of the students you used to work with at the business school. But, you know, how do you keep students today engaged when there's so many things competing for their attention? Well, it is difficult. And I've experienced that where uh, when I was on the faculty at Wash U, that we would have opportunities that would go unfilled just because we couldn't compete with all the other noise to inform students about the opportunities right in front of them. We had competition prizes for startups. We had funding opportunities that we would put out there and students, our, our intended targets still wouldn't get the message, even though it was to their advantage to hear it. I, I think at this point, multi-channel is an important strategy. Um, you know, you come at students through the means that they use the most. And for some, that might be email. For some, it might be texts. For some, it might be social media. Honestly, ironically, also posting things in the halls. Um, you know, I think it's all of the above. And you, you need to catch people where they are, not try to drive them to your channel, right? It's not right. about your channel of preference. It's about coming to people on their terms through their channel of preference where their attention span is at that very moment. So uh, I'm definitely a big believer in the multi-channel approach as a way to try to break through the noise best you can. Yeah, and you, you go to where the party's at, not create your own and hope that everybody goes over there and joins you. And I guess, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, Wash U in St. Louis. You know, I used to work at the University of Illinois at Chicago. You know, similar kind of situation. You're competing for attention versus a city. Uh, and and everything that can be done there, and similarly using multi-channel, even you know print-based stuff to just capture people's attention as they're you know kind of making their way throughout their day. But yeah, it's it's an interesting conundrum. Now, obviously, the students at um, at Washington Lee, it's a bit of a different environment there. It is. It's a small town, rural campus, really strong sense of community, high student engagement. 
I'd say that campus life is 100% of your four-year college experience, where maybe at some large, you know, urban universities like in Chicago or New York, there's more of a competition. Or St. Louis, you know. Yeah, or St. Louis, there's more of a competition uh, with kind of other community, uh, other communities, right, with a larger urban area. Absolutely. Now, you know, you were you were in St. Louis for a while. Obviously, I saw some of the uh, retirement party photos uh, on the <laughs> web. It looked like, uh, you know, you got a good send off there. But I was just curious, you know, how, how did you take this entrepreneurship program to number one? And how does that relate now to the work that you're doing as a board member and ed tech investor? Well, I, I think uh, there was three elements that were key to us growing the entrepreneurship program into what it is today. I think the first is being interdisciplinary. We, from the beginning, created a program that wasn't just for business students. Uh, In fact, business students make up a minority of the student population that takes entrepreneurship classes and participates in entrepreneurship programs. Um, We were a fairly small business school. So if we're going to have a scale of offerings, we need to have a larger population that we're serving. That gives us then the ability to offer more classes and more opportunities. It also is foundational to entrepreneurship to work with people with a variety of skill sets and getting business students connected with engineering students and social work students connected with law students. That's the core of building a business team. And so we wanted to replicate that educationally as well. And so being interdisciplinary and working across campus and basically just ignoring the internal divisions at the university and just, just ignoring them and serving the whole school, even if I was only being paid by one, you know, the whole university, even if I was only being paid by one school, was critical in making that school tops in entrepreneurship. Also, being experiential was extremely important. Entrepreneurship is a difficult field to pursue for a young person because there isn't a clear path. Every path is distinct, is different, is tailored to yourself, which is the opportunity but it also is what makes it difficult because you can't have a clear vision of what your career path looks like because there's not someone else exactly like you who took it just before you did. Like there might be in consulting or investment banking or you know many other career fields which have very clear career paths and very clear hierarchical steps moving up the ladder. Like you're going to be a doctor. Here's what you have to do. No question what doctors need to do with the first with their next eight years of their career to go from college to being a, you know, a medical practitioner in practice. And so um, getting those students to have real world experiences, getting them working with entrepreneurs, getting them doing entrepreneurial simulations is the best way to get them comfortable with what being an entrepreneur is like. And I would also say on the equity and inclusion standpoint, it's critically important because what you tend to see is most people become entrepreneurs, have parents, uncles, friends, parents who are entrepreneurs because they can picture it. They can imagine it. They Mm. can see what being an entrepreneur looks like. And so if you want to have entrepreneurship be an option for everyone, even if they don't happen to have a parent who started a business, right, you need to be able to show that path firsthand. So being experiential is critical in getting everyone to be able to see themselves as an entrepreneur or see themselves as an entrepreneur and realize that's not what they want to do, right? It goes both ways. In some cases, they're able to see themselves doing it and know 
that that is a fit. In other cases, it's just as big of a success if they see themselves in that role and they realize it's not a fit and they don't know it's not what they want to do. I think well, the third- do you, I guess the question though, before you get to your third point, and hopefully I don't derail uh, this because I think it's an excellent list so far, but I just keep thinking about the persistence element for entrepreneurship students because you're going to fail. You're going to have times where you're tested and you might think maybe this isn't for me, but that's part of it. Well, now, failure and success is not what I'm talking about when I talk about is it for you. It's about how do you do an, uh, working in an unstructured environment? How do you do uh, working in an environment which is highly ambiguous? Um, how do you do an environment that has a lack of supervision and a lack of encouragement by superiors? How do you do in an environment that um, has a high degree of meritocracy, both on the high end and on the low end? where outcomes, you know, on a case-by-case basis are going to be highly variable based on, you know, how well things are going. And so it's really about the cultural and structural elements of working in an entrepreneurial environment. It's not so much about wins and losses or, you know, you know those personal experiences having won or failed. And, and I'll tell you, there are really smart people who really like having clear set rules and knowing how to play the game. And they get really good at playing the game. And those people should become consultants. They're great at it. <laughs> but they may not want to be an entrepreneur that doesn't have clear rules of how to play the game. And I know some really good people who really need a, a, a superior to tell them they're doing a great job. And you know, doing a great job and only having yourself to pat on the back and not have someone else patting you on the back as well, that can be very demoralizing for a lot of people. A lot of high achievers thrive on that encouragement. So those are elements that are sort of independent of your personality, but certainly part of what makes you tick, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, it's uh, it all resonates in there. And by the way, if you have that third point that I totally interrupted you on. Uh, third please. is similar, and that's being engaged in the community. And it goes mm. back with creating, um, introducing people to role models, introducing people to mentors, and giving them that, that firsthand view and what it looks like. And I'll make one other quick point about entrepreneurship, and that is one of the biggest mistakes in entrepreneurial education is teaching entrepreneurship only to founders. It takes a lot more than a founder to build an entrepreneurial team. You need uh, executives in all the other disciplines in finance and accounting and sales and engineering. All of those people who are working in that startup firm are working in an entrepreneurial environment and are working as entrepreneurs. And there's other roles in business that are entrepreneurial that are akin, such as real estate development, such as business development such as sales management, Mm -hmm. which are clearly jobs that have high entrepreneurial elements or high entrepreneurial qualities that aren't necessarily being a founder. And so I think one of the other important things we did early on at WashU was had a broader definition of what it means to be an entrepreneur and recognizing that the skill sets that you teach an entrepreneur who's a founder might be the same that you're teaching to an entrepreneur who's going to be the VP of sales. Mm. or who's going to be a CFO or is going to work in venture capital or private equity. And that there's a lot of crossover and we're going to treat those all as, you know, being in the entrepreneurial discipline. I think that's really smart because I think a lot of times the, the sort of maybe popular discourse is super focused on that CEO founder role. But again, if using your sort of uh, ethos means that, yeah, there's, there's definitely a part for me to play uh, in that entrepreneurial space, which I think is probably, uh, you know, why you were able to grow and, and build it to what you build it to. But I guess, so 
obviously comfortable with ambiguity, uh, with kind of, you know, having the confidence not to need someone to give you that structure and, and, and all those elements you were talking about. But how do you inject that into a board, right? A university board and, and as well as some of the, the stuff that you're doing with ed tech. Well, on the board side, I think it's important to have people with a variety of perspectives. I think one of the most difficult things in a board is having board members who understand the higher education environment. There's a lot of people that might be very successful in business or medicine or in law and might have all the qualifications of a strong leader, but they and they don't necessarily understand the, the culture of a higher education institution. And so it can be very difficult to, to convey that and to uh, get them thinking within the confines of what is a realistic entrepreneur or a, a educational environment versus drawing back on their experience in a business environment or legal environment or medical environment, which are all very different. So I think one of the biggest challenges is, is pulling the knowledge and perspectives and experiences but then uh, being able to translate that and apply that into um, tactics and strategies that really rest in the reality of, of the academic environment. Are you saying it's a different world in the academic it is. environment? And it's a different world and that's okay. And I think that's something too that's hard to tell board members is that these other environments aren't better just because you know it and it might be great in some ways doesn't mean we have to turn the academic environment into something else. You know, maybe we should try to apply what we've learned in these environments, but apply them in the in, in the context that is authentic to academia. Yeah, no, 100% agree. Now, you know, you've invested in, in Element 451 with uh, Cultivation Capital. Why ed tech? You know, why are you interested in that space now? Well, education is one of the most important industries in the United States. It's a uh, industry that makes a tremendous impact on the community. I'd say right up there with, with the healthcare industry, right? Education and healthcare are just, to me, two of the most foundational industries in which we directly help people, right? So educators help people uh, have a better future. And so I'm very inspired by having part of that role and enabling organizations that are helping young people find their futures, uh, help them do it better. And so I think that it's a uh, it's an inspiring place to work. It's it's a place where we know you can make a difference, and it's it's a uh, industry that's just foundational to our communities. And so many communities, the the college is you know the most impactful and important organization in town. And uh, I think that that's uh, any ways that we can help those organizations also help the communities that surround them. Nice. Now, you're on a board for an institution, and I've also outed you as an investor, uh, which means <laughs> in this podcast, of course, everyone's going to come calling and ask for 15 minutes of your time uh, or, or 30, depending on who, who wrote the, the email, now that they know that you're a master uh, emailer. <laughs> but the thing I keep wondering is, you know, how do you pick the right ed tech for institutional success? Because there's a lot of people out there, a lot of vendors, uh, a lot of bright and shiny. Well, I, I think there's, um, from an investor perspective, one of the biggest drawbacks of ed tech are long sales cycles and the seasonality of those sales cycles that in some cases there are a lot of decision makers. So there's a very bureaucratic decision being made. And uh, one of the reasons why I was a really interested in Element is because 
it does not have a complicated decision-making structure. You know, your decision maker is very clear. It's the director of admissions. There might be input from uh, other administrative leaders, a, a, a dean or a college president or a CFO type, but, but ultimately they're counting on that admissions director to make the decision. So very clear uh, decision-making environment. Um, it's very not seasonal, very unseasonal. No right or wrong time of year to um, to make upgrades and changes uh, to uh, your your platform for you know admissions and enrollment. Contrary to many people's beliefs, it's a <laughs> it's a year round effort. Uh, everyone thinks it's seasonal that there's a an admission season and the rest of the time they sit around and don't do anything. That season is done now. It's all all the time. Wouldn't that be nice, right? So it's a year round. So any time of year is now the right time to make a change. And yeah, and so there's no, uh, uh, we're not held up by the normal cadence of semesters and school years and faculty committees that a lot of other ed tech companies are sort of beholden to. So I love just the, the, the clear clarity of the sales environment was one of the things I liked the best. Absolutely. Well, and to me, as someone who's been kind of covering the ed tech space in higher ed for a long time, when I used to work for InsideHigherEd.com as a freelancer who would kind of be focused on digital engagement, you know, as I've seen in the ed tech space, there's been one, there's been a lot of contraction, a lot of people sort of joining up. Uh, and two, and hopefully this doesn't throw a fly in the ointment for that simplicity that you were just mentioning. But it's, you know, we're really focusing on at, with Element now on this idea of a student engagement CRM mm-hmm. to go beyond, to go beyond well, Eric, that. You and did I, not throw me off because this is following the exact same path that we've seen in subscription software in the business world. You know, at first everybody um, saw the marketing world for software is being focused at the front of the funnel. You know, you get your pipeline of prospective clients, you sell them, you get someone signed up and marketing's done and they're on to the next lead. And in the world of subscription software, that's, that's different now, right? Because there's recurring revenue. They need to recognize that keeping customers is as important as getting new ones. In fact, it's a lot cheaper to keep a customer than it is to lose a customer and then have to replace them with a new one. You know, you just basically said recruitment and retention in higher ed with just different words. That's right. And that's what, you know, we've, we've seen this for some time. In fact, one of our other portfolio companies, one of the first companies we ever invested in in the history of our firm was a company called Gainsight. And Gainsight pioneered the idea of customer success in business and, and recognizing that, that you need to be active and proactive in making sure that your clients who subscribe to your software are successfully using your product and getting value at it, uh, out of it, so that they're not gonna surprise you and cancel their subscription. And this is exactly where education is now going only a few years later. And that is being equally proactive about, re- as, as, as proactive about retaining students as we are about initially uh, recruiting and admitting those students. And so the idea that a university should be um, put as much efforts and resources and strategy into retention as they do to attract makes perfect sense. And I think in some universities, the admissions director is going to do both. Mm, In some universities, they will create a separate department uh, that's going to be focused, you know, on on retention, but will do so in a way that just goes beyond uh, advising. Yep. And just goes yep. beyond helping people choose, you know, the classes they need for their major, that it's really making sure that those students are succeeding. So it's it's customer success, right? They're making sure that they're succeeding as a student in that university academically, socially, 
career counseling, you know, across the board, whatever the value proposition is that that school makes to their uh, students upon admission, that they're making sure that value is being delivered for, for two years or for four years. Right. Yeah. Especially I was thinking about community college leadership and how, you know, speaking of wearing many hats and, and not necessarily having as much budget or resource uh, to just set up multiple departments. And so yeah, I think it's very important. Now, you know, what should be on the agenda then, you know, for anyone who's in a leadership capacity now going forward in higher ed, what do they need to be thinking about? Yeah, I think uh, that first of all, any leader in higher education needs to understand that they run a technology company. And I think that might be shocking for some people. I think that maybe when people got into the business of higher ed, they didn't intend to run a technology company. You called it a technology company and the business of higher ed. So we're going to have some people really reacting to those comments already. Uh, They just might, and, and they may not like it, but that's the world we live in. And I will argue there's really almost nobody who's in a leadership position in any type of organization who's not running a technology company. There is a great expression that software is eating the world, and I absolutely believe that, that that there's not a process that is managed by a human that won't eventually be done better by software. And so we need to recognize that leaders of all organizations, either they're going to recognize that they're running a technology company or they're going to find themselves obsolete and beaten in the marketplace by those who are running technology companies. So I strongly urge anyone who doesn't think of themselves as running a technology company to think twice and and ask themselves what that means and are they ready. And some colleges are doing things like uh, appointing chief innovation officers to their um, presidential cabinets. Uh, Some universities are elevating the technology teams that they already have so that their CTOs or their tech teams are part of cabinet meetings. You know, there's lots of ways to go about it, but I think um, any organizational leader and and now today, particularly educational leaders need to recognize that either they need to run a technology company or they're going to find themselves being uncompetitive. I love that comment. I mean, I think I think about the fact that, you know, over the years, my experience in higher ed is that those who were sort of responsible for various technologies in an institution almost were sort of, you know, behind closed doors. And, you know, they weren't part of this whole ecosystem of, of a, an institution. And so therefore, you had disparate technologies, and, and some people had access to good stuff, some people had access to great stuff, and then others had maybe access to nothing. And, you know, it's a competitive marketplace. Students have choice. Why would they go to a school that is running uh, old tech? You know, I think the difference was if you look 10, 15 years ago, technologies were tools. Today, technology is strategy. Wow. I'm just going to let that one hang out there for a while. <laughs> you do things differently when you recognize that those aren't tools, they're strategies. And that means that uh, you have different people around the table when you're making important decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's it, it makes me think of my my last question then, because I, I keep thinking about sort of you know what the next you know in the next I don't know five to ten years, kind of looking out with a long lens, you know what the top I don't know, two to three challenges or opportunities are going to be going forward for higher ed. If you have any thoughts on that, well, I think um, it's going to get increasingly competitive for students. We're not seeing a large increase in the student population. I predict in in that time period, we're going to see fewer international students, not just for COVID, but I think that a lot of the Asian universities are getting a lot better and cultural attitudes towards the local colleges are improving. And the Mm. thought that you have to go out of the country to get a, a, a prestigious master's degree is waning. 
So uh, I, I believe that the life ring thrown in by, um, by foreign students will not uh, be there to the degree it was in the past. And we're gonna just see that slowly decline over the next 10 years, uh, certainly not grow. Um, so I think it's gonna be increasingly competitive to get students. There's also a high degree of competitiveness to get the students that everybody wants. Everybody wants a more diverse student body. And so those students are gonna be in high demand and uh, it's gonna be very competitive to get them. So I believe that um, one of the macro trends is gonna be, it's gonna be both uh, harder for students to get into college and harder for colleges to recruit students at the same time. Uh, wow, what, a, what an ironic conundrum that is. I guess it's not too much unlike other things in society that are just getting more complicated, but it's gonna get more complicated. And uh, uh, what that means is that best operators are gonna win. Mm. And and that maybe isn't a way that universities thought about things in the past. They didn't think about um, winning in the marketplace by being of the best operator, by running the most efficient models, by having the most the highest customer service, by having the uh, having measured outcomes that demonstrate you know value creation and success. Yeah, but Cliff, can't you just have like a pretty campus with you know brick buildings and and you know a winning football team? And isn't that gonna isn't that gonna just work out? I think if you just put Washington in your name, that might be enough. <laughs> Probably. But you're exactly right, right? You know, I mean, those are those are great, and that might get someone's attention. But uh, we're an increasingly data-driven society, and, and people want to um, see the actual outcomes. And the way you drive outcomes is by being a great operator. That's where we go back to technology as a strategy, not just a tool. I love it. Cliff, thank you so much for your time. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was Cliff Holkamp, general partner at Cultivation Capital, which you can check out at cultivationcapital.com. Thank you for listening to In Your Element, brought to you by Element 451 and part of the Enrollify podcast network. You can find more about the Element 451 student engagement CRM at element451.com. And if you like what you heard today, please give us a rating and review and follow along on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Eric Stoller, and we'll see you next time on In Your Element. Oh, 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 oh